have you can tell a wonderful and they keep everything confidential so you don't have to, to worry about it. So you're going through a rough patch and you need, need some help. We're all there to help. And uh, we'll, we'll kind of all do that together for our prayer in a minute. Would you please open a Bible to Psalm 15? It's on page 453, and I'd urge you to keep it open the entire time because we'll be using it right up to the end. It's a wonderful little psalm to memorize. I'm going to read you the whole thing, and then we're going to kind of walk through it with a kind of a major introduction in the middle. Kind of different. Psalm 15, starting at verse 1. O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and seeks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not sin, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would supersede me or supersede our hearts. Just speak to us. Speak clear. So much has changed in our culture. Help us to be clear about basic truths that Christians have believed, that the Bible explains. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to say a lot about verse 1 to begin with. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now you know that when the Israelites were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't have faith to go into the promised land, they had the Ten Commandments on a couple of tablets, and they had some other things. They were all in what's called the Ark of the Covenant, um, and they had a tent or a tabernacle that that would stay in. And Moses would go to the tabernacle and talk with God. It was where he would meet with God. The tabernacle represented God's presence. And then hundreds of years later, King David conquered Jerusalem, and sometime after that, he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which was up on a hill and mountainous area. And so you went up to Jerusalem, and he put it in a tent there, and so that's the holy hill. So dwelling on the holy hill in this tent is basically referring to the presence of God. Okay, this this psalm is talking about how to dwell in God's presence. We were singing about wanting to experience more of God's presence, and today we'll talk about some of the things that encourage that and some of the things that, that hinder that. Okay, pop quiz. What place in the world claims to be the happiest place on earth? You guys are fast. You guys are good. That's pretty good marketing on their part. Um, but really, of all the places that exist, what really is the happiest place? Mm, that's the answer. Okay. Heaven. Heaven. Because of God's presence. God, God, just being in His presence is, brings more joy than anything that this life has to offer. When we get to heaven, 
we will experience God face to face. It'll be more thrilling, more fulfilling, more impressive, more awe-inspiring than anything and everything we've experienced in this life. We'll be filled with, with happiness and joy. We'll be overwhelmed by God's glory. We'll kind of exude from Him in terms of His goodness and His beauty and His power and His love for you. You'll sense it. Being in God's presence, we'll do a lot of things in heaven, including all kinds of adventures and a pristine earth to, to do lots of things on. But being in God's presence will always be the very best experience there is, and you'll never get tired of it. Now, God offers that experience absolutely free to anybody who's willing to believe in Jesus Christ, believe what God has said about His Son, and, and make Him their King. So heaven, to experience God's presence face-to-face, is better than anything, and that's the coming. I love it when Pastor Ben said some weeks ago in December that, that we're really grateful and filled with joy because we've been forgiven. We're filled with joy because we're getting to know God and He's amazing, and we're filled with joy because of what we know is coming. Being in God's presence face to face. This psalm is talking about being in God's presence in this life. Because we also do that, but we experience it to a lesser degree. Now, sometimes you go through a really rough patch, a desert, and you feel like you're not experiencing God at all. Sometimes you may feel like, I can really feel that I'm in God's presence. I often feel that here with you when we're worshiping. I love the way uh, we're led in, in worship. Um, Sometimes when I'm out hiking and talking to God, I really feel His presence out in nature. Or, or sometimes I'm just doing this way and He nudges me to go that way and I, and I, I feel His presence. Um, the Apostle Paul explains that when we turn our life over to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and He is the down payment. When you give a down payment on a house or a car, what are you saying? More is coming. And the Holy Spirit, He is not as overwhelming as what our experience in heaven will be, but He's the down payment that more of God's presence is coming. We're given power, peace, a sense of God's presence. Sometimes Him directing us. Sometimes, and people are different. Some people kind of feel God nudging them. Sometimes people kind of feel Him speaking to them. Some just get a picture. Some just get this feeling that He wants me to do something. It's just not as overwhelming and enthralling as it will be when we see Jesus face to face. Now, Jesus went away to prepare a place for us. While he's gone, we miss him because we love him. We, we long for him to return. I was trying to think of a metaphor for this, and, and I thought soldiers returning from overseas are, are a good metaphor. Their families, they may get to talk to him over there. They may even get to video conference with him, but it's just not the same as being physically with him, is it? And they miss them. And when the soldiers return, oh, there's lots of hugs and tears of joy. And have you seen any of those commercials on TV where the soldier returns and kind of surprises the family? And they just, yeah, I, I love this one I saw, saw where, where this, a bunch of cheerleaders are going through the gym like this, and, the, and near, the, near the end there's one, and she sees her dad, and she just melts right into a puddle on the floor. And she gets up and goes and hugs her. Just, it's just overwhelming um, joy to see someone that we've been longing for. And while, while Jesus is physically away, we talk with Him when we pray. We sing about Him and the Father and the Spirit when we, when we come here and maybe by yourself in the shower. We, we study His reliable message in the Bible. Um, and just like spouses and families that long for the soldier they love who's off fighting, we think about and long for Jesus. Hopefully, you think about God a lot. My favorite quote from A.W. Tozer, this famous writer in the last century, is, 
what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you think about God a lot? Do you long for Jesus to return in the same way families think about and long for the soldier they love to return? See, see, while we're in this uncomfortable season of living in a fallen world, and we all suffer, you may be in a good phase right now, you may be in a bad phase right now. But while we're waiting for Jesus to return and, and, and take us in his arms and make us feel more loved and, and happier than we've ever felt, Psalm 15 is giving us some principles. Psalm 15 promises that if we will follow these instructions, we will stay in God's presence even when life gets difficult. Kind of like a giant rock or a boulder in a storm. Psalm 15 promises that you will be like that rock. You will not be moved from God's presence. Now, I imagine some of you are thinking, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus promise I will never leave you or forsake you? Uh, so it doesn't really matter what we do or how we live. We will still be in his presence. Also, isn't he everywhere? Didn't we just learn a song last week about how he's, that's the point of the song? Yes. God is everywhere. God is what we say omnipresent in theology. When we run from God, he pursues us. When Jesus' followers disobey God and head down what Jesus calls the road or the way of destruction, his spirit still brings us to repentance by, and, and gets us back on track. But while we are running from God or temporarily living in disobedience, our experience of God is not the same as when we are right with him. When we are, because we're not having fellowship with him. So God is there, but we experience that fellowship much differently. We're not filled with peace or love or joy. Both the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Paul said that sometimes we grieve the Holy Spirit. Famous theologian John Calvin explains it like this. We grieve him when we do not follow his guidance, but pollute ourselves by wicked passion. At times, grieving the Holy Spirit to such a degree as to compel him to withdraw from us. Now, just a parenthesis. I'm in a long introduction as such, and the reason is our culture has changed. Last week we talked about it being post-truth. We can, and, and there's a sense in which it's also post-morality. Everything is up for grabs, and it kind of has, there's, there's no longer a consensus, even within churches, about what the Bible says is right and wrong, good and evil. And so I'm trying to explain how this all fits together, that obedience is not optional. And that's all through the New Testament and the Old. We just happen to be using it in Psalms. And so I'm going to try and help you see how I piece it all together. And if you have questions, let me know. So when we love the Lord, we want to please Him, and we want to become more like Jesus. He's our idol. He's our, our hero. However, the Bible says that our old nature, what the New Testament pejoratively calls the flesh, still tries to tempt us to disobey. The Apostle Paul writes, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So our flesh, our old nature tempts us. The world, society around us tries to get us to do things that are, that are wrong, and the devil also tries to tempt us. And at times, all of us give in to that temptation, whether you're a pastor or you've been a Christian for a long, long time or just beginning. 
we sin, our old nature keeps us from being more like Jesus. Now, when we sin, the Holy Spirit tries to get our attention. Uh, He may take away our peace. He may, um, if we've grieved him, as Calvin says, he may withdraw his presence from us. He may nudge us in a way that helps us to realize we've gotten off track. He may show that that to us in the Bible. Maybe in our small group someone says something. Maybe in a sermon we hear something. And and I have no doubt that some of you today, as I say some things, I'm going to talk about a bunch of different principles. And you may want to latch on to one. And you may feel like, oh, i got to get back on track. That's how sometimes the Holy Spirit nudges us. And what normally happens at that point is we repent. And we receive God's free and gracious forgiveness. And once again, we experience God's presence and His peace. Now, in three weeks, Lord willing, we're going to look at a very famous psalm, Psalm 51. And we will look at this process in depth of experiencing God's forgiveness. Now, the Apostle John says that people who have God's Spirit do not just keep right on going in disobedience. They repent of their rebellion precisely because the Holy Spirit is in their hearts and woos them. The Apostle John says that, that just, they just don't keep on doing that. However, sometimes people will keep on rebelling for a while. Do you remember the story of King David? King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he had her husband Uriah put in the front lines and killed, basically murdered by proxy. And it was a long while. He didn't repent until the prophet Nathan came and talked to him, and then he repented. So sometimes it takes a while. But the Bible also says that sometimes people are continuing on in rebellion because they actually have never turned their life over to Jesus. They may go to church, but they've never really turned their life over to Jesus. So it's difficult to know, even if you are that person. If you are continuing on in rebellion, you don't have God's peace. If that's your situation, if you are continuing to rebel by doing something that God has clearly said is wrong, please Repent. Stop. Ask God to forgive you and be restored into a right relationship. This is so serious. Jesus, the apostles, John, Peter, Paul, James, they all just hold this up and go, Repent. Don't do that. Obedience is not optional. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Peter writes, For if after they had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And John writes, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The whole idea of not continuing on and not repenting. So as we've been singing in recent weeks, is God... Everywhere, absolutely, always. And your experience of Him, if you, the Holy Spirit will sometimes withdraw from you if you are refusing to repent. And another thing, just to remember in this entire series, God's moral code, which as I, as I said, in America, we're pretty much post-morality now. There is no monolithic agreement about right and wrong. But God's moral code is explained in the Bible. And you might think of like a summary like the Ten Commandments. There are still three purposes for it today in, in our lives. And the first, which, which Luther says the first purpose, is to show us that we're just not good enough. 
We all sin. We all miss the mark. We, no one is good enough to earn their salvation. That's, so we need a Savior. That's the first purpose. And the second purpose is that it's not arbitrary. God tells us to be faithful because He is faithful. God tells us to tell the truth because He's always telling the truth. It flows out of His character. And so the moral code displays for us what God is like. Helps us to get to know Him. And then thirdly, the moral code guides us. It instructs us how to love God and people well. See, we don't know that. We need to be told how. And if we love Jesus and we want to become more like Him, the Bible tells us how to do that. Be faithful. Be generous. Serve others. If you're a parent, or if you, you were once a kid, parents always teach their kids how to be good people, how to love people. God teaches His children how to love people. People have not changed in thousands of years. This, this psalm was written thousands of years ago. God's instruction hasn't changed. His people haven't changed. But every time, whether it's a thousand years ago or 500 or today, in every society there are some things, and they vary from society to society, that people either don't like or don't under, have trouble understanding. But God knows more than we do. He, know, he wants what's best for us. He has communicated to us reliably in the Bible. We are to follow His instructions whether we agree with them or not, whether we understand them to our satisfaction or not. And that is especially important today as our culture is changing in what it believes is right now. James writes, Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Do not be deceived. Don't get confused. A lot of people, if you say, well, obedience is not optional, they say, well, that's legalism. No. Legalism is believing we can earn our own salvation by keeping rules. Obedience from the heart that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, it pleases and honors God. It helps us to love well and it transforms us. Disobedience is rebellion and grieves the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is kind of a long thing to kind of set the stage as we look at principles in Joel's song. Okay? All right, so if you kind of settled in from that, come back. And get ready to look at Psalm 15. I'm just going to pick some of the principles there. There are too many to go through them all. You can easily study the ones that I leave out. But God's promise is that following these instructions will keep us in His presence, make us like an immovable huge rock in a storm. It'll keep us from grieving the Holy Spirit so that He withdraws from us. Okay? Look at verse 2. So how do you, how, what do you do to stay in God's presence? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks in his heart. But what does it mean to be blameless? Now, in the book of Philippians, the, the Apostle Paul talks about when he used to be called Saul. When he was a Pharisee, and he says, you know, according to how the Pharisees do things, I was blameless, he says. And that's because the Pharisees had misunderstood. They had looked at things like Psalm 15, and they had boiled it all down in, in, in all that Moses had said. They boiled it, down, boiled it down to only 613 rules. And you could keep all of those rules externally and not actually love God or people internally. And Jesus comes along and says, you guys have so misunderstood. And he makes it really clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like, you've heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, he internalizes about the heart. It was, it was always a summary. It was always love God and love your neighbor. How did they think it would be just summarizing 613 external rules? 
And so when we get to this internalization, we see that, again, the first purpose of the law, nobody is perfect. We all need a Savior. We all sin against others. So in that case, what does it mean to walk blamelessly? What it says right there in, in Psalm 1 and Psalm 15. It means that you do what God says is right, and when you mess up, and we all mess up, you do your best to make it right with the person that you have sinned against. You confess your sin, you ask for forgiveness, and if possible, when you soak it, you make restitution. Another principle that has kind of gone by the wayside in our culture. And then look at the last part of that verse. And seek truth in his heart. Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things. So how do you seek truth in your heart? See, your heart wants to deceive you into believing lies. And sometimes it deceives you into thinking you're better than other people and you hold them in contempt. You tear them down. You make excuses for your own feelings. They're not really that important. When actually, we would be nothing if it wasn't for the grace of God. And we all struggle with something. Well, it may not be that you think you're better. It may be that you think you're so awful that God could never love you. He could never think you're valuable. See, to speak the truth in our heart is to agree with what God says is reality. We are more evil than we realize, but we are more loved than we can possibly imagine. We hold on to both of those. Jesus voluntarily suffered horribly for us because he loves us and wants us with him forever. We are sinners saved by grace. And you know those people that really irritate you? God loves them just as much as you. Seeking the truth in our hearts should make us feel valued and grateful, but very humble, and loving toward others, even loving toward our enemies. So what happens when we speak the truth in our heart? What does that do on the outside? Well, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. When we speak the truth in our heart, we bring forth good things. Now, if we ignore our heart and we just kind of say, well, I'm going to keep my mouth shut and not say anything bad. But really in our hearts, we continue to just feel contempt for others or anger. Then we just become more and more hypocritical. However, if we try to guard our tongue because we want to love people well and we're asking the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus in our hearts, then the Spirit will use that to gradually change us. Now, throughout the series, I just want you to keep in mind this whole thing of how our head impacts our heart, impacts our hands. Our hands, in this instance, is what we say with our, with our mouth. But if we are asking the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, and we're working on what we actually say or do, that impacts our heart. Also, what's going on in our hearts, out of the abundance of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. That in, impacts what we, what we say. What we're thinking, what we're understanding, what we're feeling in our heart, and what we're doing with our hands and our mouth, all of these impact each other. It has always been that way. The Scripture is very clear about that. It's not simply what you think, it's, nor is it simply what you do. They all impact each other. When we speak God's truth in our hearts, good things flow out of our mouths. When we guard our mouths and stop saying unloving things because we want to be more like Jesus, the Spirit uses that to train our hearts, to train our minds, our heads to understand. Verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue. Slander in the Bible generally means telling lies or half-truths about someone behind their back. Now, bad-mouthing is different than slander because when you bad-mouth someone, you might be telling the truth. Okay? 
And the Bible also says we're not to badmouth. In, in James it says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Badmouthing people is probably one of the most pervasive sins on the planet. I've been working on avoiding badmouthing myself for decades, and I don't do it nearly as much as I used to, but I still badmouth people and have to go back and work on it some more. And badmouthing is often a form of condemning others. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the measure you give, you will be judged. The judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And see, this goes right back to speaking the truth in your heart. The truth is, there's a log in my eye. The log is whatever sin I struggle with. It doesn't make any sense to condemn you just because you struggle with a different sin than I do. When we condemn others in this way by slandering or badmouthing, we are forgetting to tell ourselves the truth in our hearts. So you see how this all links together. And the truth is, we're all flawed and broken. We're all sinners saved by grace. Now, before you say, well, what do I do when... There are appropriate ways without badmouthing or slandering that sometimes we have to help people deal with things that they're doing wrong that are in, that are impacting. Sometimes God says just cover it in grace and love and pray for them. Sometimes He says go and lovingly confront them. But it's without bad-mouthing, it's without slander. Now, God may be nudging you and saying you need to work in this area of bad-mouthing. If you do, feel free to talk to me. I have a process that has worked with hundreds of people that um, it's actually fairly straightforward. It takes about four to six weeks, and you'll find, if you make it perfect, but you'll find a lot of, of change. If you can work with the Holy Spirit to improve on things like bad-mouthing and speaking the truth in your heart, it will impact a lot of other areas in your life, and you will actually see a somewhat dramatic improvement in how well you love other people. So look at this truth. And does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, love your neighbor is a positive way of saying, and does no evil to his neighbor, although love your neighbor would include a lot of proactive or good things, but maybe doing no evil would not. All of God's instructions in the Bible about how we deal with people are about loving your neighbor. That's why Jesus summarizes it as, love God, love your neighbor. The next part, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This is the part I want to focus on for a little bit. I think it's kind of important in our world today. Now, this phrase has been interpreted in various ways by, by different people. I'm going to explain it in the way it was explained to me. Uh, I still believe it's the most helpful way and um, probably the most accurate. But I think most people have never considered it. So if what I'm about to explain to you, you have, or you already know, just bring it to remind me that. Come and tell me, okay? I'd really be curious because most people have never considered it. What does it mean to take up a reproach? It means you respond emotionally to someone who sinned against someone else as though they did it to you. Let's say someone I love comes and tells me that you hurt their feelings or treated them unfairly. Taking up a reproach means I hold against you what you did to them as if you'd done to me. I become angry and unforgiving toward you, even if only in my heart. Maybe I smile on the outside. So it damages my heart and my relationship with you. Now this happens if you're a parent, or you probably did it as a child, 
This happens a lot when, when our kid comes home from school and says, Daddy, hit me. You know, or, Squeaky, call me names. And as parents, we come to, <clears throat> and we want to, you know, fix this. And what happens usually the next day? Well, they'll back up playing with Johnny. They're fine. Not always, but a lot of times, you know. If uh, our, our two approximately four-year-old grandsons, you know, they love each other. They play and they're running around. And then one steals the other one's ball. And there's drama. And there's crying. And there's I hate you and all of that. And the parents are very good to come and talk it out with them. Have them say they're sorry. And five minutes later, they're hugging and having a great time. And they haven't even, don't even remember it. Okay? A lot of times it happens when a spouse uh, comes home and shares something awful that happened at work. And the other, you know. And what happens usually is they go back to work, they get it resolved, and then they forget to tell their spouse that it's all fixed. tells me you did such and such to them and hurt them, they may not be giving me all the information. They've certainly given it to me from their point of view. But even if they're 100% accurate, and you really did something wrong to hurt them, God gives them the grace and the power to forgive you. And hopefully you realize, oh, I really messed up. And you go and you ask them to forgive you, and hopefully they forgive you. But you didn't sin against me. You can't come and ask me to forgive you for something you didn't do to me. You don't have that responsibility. I just want you to go a little deep with me on this one. And I want to take up a reproach against all the perpetrators of evil I hear about on the news. I would be mad and bitter all day long. Against people whom I will never meet and who will never come and ask me to forgive and yet all over our country today, we have become a bitter and angry people. No matter which side of the aisle you're on, as almost everyone is taking up the torture against people in the world. It's not good for us. The people of the country, it's not good for the world. It keeps us from doing much of the good we could do if we could find some time to do. If you want to live peacefully, and joyfully in God's presence, which is the promise of Psalm 15, here's what I suggest in this area. When someone comes to you and tells you what someone did to them, trust, or you see it on the news, trust that God loves the people involved in these situations as much as He loves them. If they love Him, then Romans 8.28 promises that He will use it to bless them. He will give those involved the grace and the power they need. Now, if you have enough offenses and hurts in your life to deal with. You don't need to pick up reproaches against other people. Just pray for the people in the situation. And remind yourself that rarely do you have all the facts. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Now, since it is especially challenging not to take up a reproach on our kids or our parents, is involved, I would suggest that you train your heart gradually by taking on the easier things first. Jesus said, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. So we can train in little things and then extend them on to the harder things. So I would say train yourself by 
not taking up a reproach against someone that you hear about in the news. Just pray for them. Remind yourself God's in the situation, and you don't need more anger and bitterness. That's what I would suggest. And then eventually, and then eventually, get to where you can use that even with your kids and your spouse. We're going to finish now, and I want to take one more principle. Psalm 15, verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. The last principle we're going to look at is who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And Jesus covered this again in the story of the mountain. He said, don't swear by heaven or Jerusalem or earth or your own head. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's a liable. See, you can rely on Jesus. He always does what he says he will do. Imagine what it would be like if you could not rely on Jesus. Well, you love Jesus and you want to become like him, right? So become a lion. Arrive when you say you will arrive. Do what you say you will do, even if it's not working out as you thought it was going to. If you need to change an agreement you have with someone, do not inform them. Call on their mercy and ask if they're still willing to let you change. And if they aren't willing, then do what you said you would do, even if it costs you. God will bless you. And then the last verse, he who does these things shall never be moved. God wants you to never be moved from his presence, to be like a huge dock no storm can move. I know a lot of people in this room who are going through a storm right now. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. May God give you all the grace and power you need to increasingly put these principles into life that you will be in God's presence no matter what happens. Lord, would you give me that?